This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text today, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Hear the word of God. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Lord, open to us your word this morning. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive the truth that you have for us today in this passage that speaks to us of our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Just as any army likes to advance, likes to be gaining ground, moving forward, but occasionally finds the need to, uh, to pull back, to regroup, to retrench. So we find in Matthew's Gospel, in the expansion of the kingdom of heaven, that there are times of great advance, but there are also times in a passage like ours today, where there seems to be a time to fall back, uh, to let things rest for just a little bit. Not that the kingdom ever stops advancing truly, but we see a period in Jesus' ministry here where he becomes somewhat more obscure, somewhat more hidden, and actually seeks out that uh, relative obscurity. And so as we look at this passage today, most of which is... is uh, composed of a quotation from the Old Testament. I want us to look at three different things that we find here in this passage. First of all, Jesus' rejection. And this kind of ties in a little bit with what we looked at uh, last time. But then also Jesus' actual withdrawal. And then finally, this prophecy from Isaiah that we find here that really composes the bulk of our passage. So first of all, let's look at Jesus' rejection here in this passage. Uh, Our text picks up with uh, a reference to what has gone before. Jesus, aware of this, aware of what? What is this referring to? Uh, Well, it refers back to the passage just before us. And you'll recall, if you were here last Sunday, that we looked at a passage where uh, Jesus had uh, healed a man with a withered hand there in the synagogue. And it happened to be on the Sabbath day. In fact, the... uh, The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're the ones that raised the subject, not because they were interested in sincere discussion, but because they were hoping to be able to trap Jesus 
by what he said. I've been reading in John's Gospel, and, and it's interesting that Jesus seems to heal on the Sabbath a lot. Uh, whether that was intentional to make the point or not, um, the, the man, the, the paralyzed man by the pool of Siloam, you know, Jesus heals him in John 5, and it's, John notes, the Sabbath day. Or the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus heals him, and uh, it's noted there that now it was the Sabbath day. Now, Jesus healed a lot of people on the Sabbath day, maybe to make the point, but I think more than that, what better day? Uh, far from being a violation of the law of God, it, it, while it may have been a violation of human rules, what better day for healing for that, that visible and powerful expression of the redemption Christ was bringing, what better day than the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day of refreshment, the day of renewal? Uh, and so Jesus apparently made it quite the practice to heal people on the Sabbath, though on other days as well. But we're looking at his rejection here, and it really comes down to uh, Jesus healing the man in verse 13, uh, where the man is healthy. But verse 14 says, The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, later, Jesus would ask them, for which of the miracles you know, do you oppose me? And say, well, it's not for the miracles, we'll read this in John, but because you, being a man, claim to be God. And they knew exactly what all of this meant, and they rejected it, but they hated Jesus. They wanted to not just put him away, not just lock him up. It doesn't even say they wanted to kill him. It says they wanted to destroy him. They wanted to eradicate him and everything he had done, from the face of the earth. Uh, it's kind of humorous to read in various places, John 9 being one of them, the difficulty they have dealing with the fact that Jesus has healed people, that the evidence is there, you know, that he did heal the blind man, that he did raise Lazarus from the dead. It's curious the later not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. That'd make it the second time he died. The first didn't seem to take. But they so opposed Jesus, they were so blind to what Jesus was doing that they could not even be happy that this man's arm was healed. They could only seethe in rage against Jesus. Why? Well, all kinds of reasons. He exposed their uh, veneer, their superficial righteousness, actually their hypocrisy, uh, exposed it to others, but he also exposed it to themselves. And they didn't like it. Jesus' words, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' love for people, Jesus' compassion for the hurting convicted them. It showed them what they were not. And they hated it. Jesus refused to play their game. He refused to play by their rules. He refused to jump through their hoops. They hated Jesus because he showed kindness to people they held in contempt. You know, they, they, they looked down on Jesus because he was a friend of sinners. How much more self-righteous it was to hate those kind of people and look on them with contempt. Jesus went and ate with them. They didn't like that. And no doubt a little bit of envy here. Jesus was drawing the crowds they weren't, and they didn't like that. And so they set out to destroy Jesus. 
You know, people sometimes think, if only I had lived when Jesus did. If only I had seen the miracles. If only I had heard Jesus teach. But dear friends, there were all kinds of people who saw the miracles Jesus did, who heard the words that Jesus spoke and called out, crucify him, crucify him. Our fallen nature, as Romans says, is at enmity with God. By nature, we are opposed to God. By nature, we are enemies of Christ. J.C. Ryle puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, this is human nature appearing in its true colors. The unconverted heart hates God and will show its hatred whenever it dares and has a favorable opportunity. It will persecute God's witnesses. It will dislike all who have anything of God's mind and are renewed after his image. Why were so many of the prophets killed? Why were the names of the apostles cast out as evil by the Jews? Why were the early martyrs slain? Why were John Huss and Jerome of Prague and Ridley and Latimer burned at the stake? Not for any sins that they had sinned, not for any wickedness they had committed. They all suffered because they were godly men. And human nature, unconverted, hates godly men because it hates God. They hated Christ because they hate God. Because it is in their nature. They're blind to him. They're deaf to him. And they are repulsed by him. It's amazing from a regenerate point of view to understand that. And yet maybe that's where some of you were at one point. Calvin puts it this way. He says, how obstinate is the rage which drives the wicked to oppose God. You know, it's interesting, the rise of... um, Proponents of atheism, books on atheism, atheism in these days. Uh, and yet atheism is not ultimately an intellectual problem. It is a, well, first a spiritual problem, but it's also a moral problem. Atheism gets you off the hook. If there is a God, then you are somehow accountable and liable to him, and that's simply untenable. It is an intellectual matter, but first and foremost, it's spiritual and moral. Calvin says how obstinate, how stubborn is that rage which drives the wicked to oppose God. Confronted with the evidence, they don't believe, they want to get rid of Jesus. Well, that's Jesus' rejection here. Now, we've seen this building opposition, but here it's just said they want to destroy him. They want to get rid of him. They've got to get rid of him. Second, then, we see Jesus' withdrawal. Look at verses 15 through 17. Jesus Aware of this, aware of their antagonism, aware of their plans, maybe specific plans. They were conspiring. They were plotting. Maybe there was some particular plan in place that Jesus had become aware of. Withdrew from there. And I think, did he run? Was this some expression of cowardice on Jesus' part? That he got out of there when, when the heat was rising? Uh, well, no. Uh, it was not so much a matter of cowardice. In fact, Jesus quite willingly went to his death when the time came. And in fact, his withdrawal was apparently not so much a secret thing as, as it was just a geographical thing. Because we read, he withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all. So there were lots of people who knew where Jesus had gone. 
He just got out of the vicinity of where these particular Pharisees were, but it was apparently no secret where he had gone because crowds continued to follow him, and he healed them, and he ordered them not to make him known. You see, this was not so much a matter of cowardice, fear of his enemies, as it was prudence. It was wisdom. You see, Jesus told those he healed not to make him known. Now, that didn't work before, and it probably didn't work now. Uh, Jesus would tell people, look, you know, keep it quiet. But suppose you had had a withered hand that's now good and strong. Suppose you had been lame and paralyzed and unable to walk, and now you could walk. Suppose you had been blind, and now you can see. One, the evidence is there. Two, you could hardly keep quiet about what had happened and explaining. So Jesus did tell people not to talk about it, but in fact, they did. They did go out, and that actually made things harder for him. Well, why would he do this? Well, Jesus in his ministry did not seek undue publicity. He did not uh, go out and and seek popularity. Uh, Quite the opposite. Uh, He did, for a time in his ministry, have a popular following, great great crowds who would come out to hear him or see him, much as they did John the Baptist before him, only more so. But Jesus himself didn't cultivate that. He didn't seek that. He didn't try to develop that. And the main reason was that people had the wrong ideas about the Messiah. Jesus understood that when people began to engage in speculation... When Messiah fever was sweeping the land, they would have all kinds of wrong ideas about who Jesus was, what he came to do. And all of that could be a hindrance to his ministry, like when he fed them and they wanted to take him and make him king. Well, that's not what his ministry was about. So he told those not to minister to not to make him known, but his time had not yet come. I told you I was reading in John. It's interesting, even in John chapter 7, how frequently... Uh, that, that reference comes up in John chapter uh, 7 about Jesus' time not having come. And in verse 6, uh, Jesus says to his brothers, My time has not yet come. In verse 8, uh, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And in verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, Jesus was very conscious of what was going to happen later in his ministry with his death, but it wasn't time for it yet. Now, you could say on the one hand that in God's providence it wasn't going to happen until the time came. That's kind of the divine sovereignty side of the equation. But you could also say that Jesus prudently withdrew from these hostile people because on the human level, he, he knew it wasn't his time, and he was going to take steps to avoid precipitating those events that would lead up to his, the time of his death. And so Jesus, aware that it was not yet time for those events to be set in motion, withdrew, uh, got out of the heat to let things cool, to let things settle a little bit because it was not his time. But this also was in accord with his ministry as was prophesied. Uh, Jesus wasn't out looking for violent physical confrontation with the authorities. And even when his death did come, the time came for his death, Jesus willingly and voluntarily surrendered and discouraged an armed effort to defend him. 
And the whole tenor of his ministry then is summed up in this passage from Isaiah that Matthew quotes. Uh, Jesus withdrew. He tried to ask people to, he asked people to try to keep things quiet. In verse 17, Matthew notes, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now we have here a quotation from Isaiah, the longest Old Testament quotation in Matthew's gospel. And so we've looked at his rejection, his withdrawal, and this brings us into his prophecy, this passage that talks about Jesus. First of all, the source, uh, this is a quotation from the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 42, not the passage we read earlier, but another of the servant songs or the suffering servant songs that we find in Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah, you say, well, who is the servant spoken of here? Well, in, in the original context, it really describes Israel, servant of the Lord. But obviously, in a, in a, in a broader view and in the fulfillment of those passages, it is quite evidently pointing toward Jesus. And Jesus was the embodiment of Israel. Jesus was everything that Israel was not in terms of his covenant faithfulness to his father, in terms of his perfect obedience to the law. He himself is the true Israelite uh, and, and, and kept everything that Israel in the Old Testament had failed to keep. And so ultimately Jesus is the suffering servant. And we see that in a passage that we read like Isaiah 52 and 53, where it so uh, clearly speaks of the suffering of Jesus and on and through Isaiah 53 in, in considerable detail uh, as to Jesus' sufferings. Well, this passage that, that Matthew quotes is another one of the servant songs from Isaiah chapter 42, and it's one that speaks not so much of the suffering of the servant, of the Messiah, like Isaiah 53 did, but of the character of the Messiah, the character of his ministry, the character of his personality. And so we want to spend our last few minutes just looking at some of these qualities of character that uh, Matthew cites from Isaiah here, because it explains why Jesus withdrew. It explains the kind of ministry that he had. Well, let's look at some of these elements of his character. First of all, we learn that he was chosen by God. Look at verse uh, 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And we read that earlier uh, in, in Hebrews, that Jesus was appointed. He did not seek this himself, but was appointed to this task. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves, of, of Christians, as being an elect people or a chosen people. But did it occur to you that Jesus was elect? In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it speaks of Jesus, who was the ESV translate, who was foreknown before the creation of the world. The NIV translates there, who was chosen before the creation of the world. You see, even before he created the world, God chose us in Christ to be saved, but God also chose Christ, appointed him, second person of the Trinity, to be the Redeemer, to be the one who accomplished the salvation of his elect sinners, his elect people. And it says here that the Father has chosen him, his servant, uh, speaks to his lowliness throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus' servanthood is emphasized. Remember Jesus speaking to his disciples, arguing who is the greatest. Jesus said, 
you know, the one who is least among you is the greatest. The great ones among you are those who serve, those who humble themselves, not those who seek glory and power and influence over others. The Gentiles, you know, run after those things. Jesus said the least among you, the greatest among you shall be least of all. John 13, where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he kneels at their feet and washes their feet and says, you know, I'm your Lord and Master. Well, as I've done for you, so you should do for one another, indicating that same attitude of servanthood toward one another that they should have that he had for them. You know, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, how much more should you be willing to serve one another. I mean, you think about it. The God who brought the universe into being is there scrubbing dirt off their feet. It's pretty staggering. Uh, Luke chapter 22, where Jesus says, I am among you. This is verse 27. I am among you as one who serves. You see, all of that, and when you read the suffering servant or the servant songs in Isaiah, Jesus was a servant. He served his disciples. He served those to whom he ministered. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of though he was in this exalted and high place and glory, humbled himself, becoming a servant. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Even in the Old Testament, the father's uh, affection for his son. And we see that in Jesus' ministry. We saw it in his baptism. My son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, We see it in his transfiguration. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But even Isaiah speaks there of the father's love for his son. So he's chosen by God, a servant and yet dearly loved. There's another aspect of Jesus' character. Not only was he chosen, but the passage goes on here to tell us he was empowered by the spirit. Verse 18 again. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. We read earlier in Matthew of Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit coming down on him in the form of a dove. Besides being a great depiction of the Trinity, the voice of the Father from heaven, Jesus there, you know, and standing in the water, and the Holy Spirit coming down, the three persons of the Trinity, why the Holy Spirit? Why would the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus? Why would the second person of the Trinity need the help of the third person of the Trinity in his ministry? Well, a second person of the Trinity, he didn't. But as a human being, he did. Remember, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And the two natures are not confused or intermingled or mixed up. Jesus was just as human as you are. And he needed as you need, the power of the Holy Spirit in his human nature in order to carry out his ministry. In his humanity, Jesus used the same resources that you have, the power of the Holy Spirit, prayer, and the Word of God to live in obedience to his Heavenly Father. Yes, you could say, well, occasionally he pulled rank. You know, his divine nature was there. He um, he healed people. Occasionally he had knowledge that no human being could have had. But in his humanity, Jesus lived in obedience to the Father with the word, with prayer, and yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit for proclaiming justice to the nations or to the Gentiles, as the ESV has it, could be translated nations, the ethne, the nations, the Gentiles. In other words, outside Judaism. Uh, And we said Matthew has this heart for the nations, for the Gentiles, and that comes through in his uh, quotation of Isaiah here. 
So he's chosen by God. He's empowered by the Spirit. But for what? To come and be pompous and throw his weight around? No. Come and carry out a ministry that was humble in manner. Chosen by God, empowered by the Spirit, but humble in manner. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This passage or this verse speaks to the mildness of Jesus' ministry, almost the quietness of it. Uh, Jesus was not a rabble-rouser. Jesus wasn't out trying to stir up a riot. Jesus wasn't out drawing undue attention to himself. And in fact, his, his unbelieving brothers encouraged him to do that very thing. John chapter 7, read from it just a few minutes ago, uh, in, the, in the first couple of verses, uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was going on in Jerusalem in John 7, 3. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus, why do you keep working in secret? You want to have a following? You want to be known? You got to get out there where the people are. You got to have a big banner. You got to get on the radio. You got to, you know, do whatever it takes. To make yourself known. So even his brothers didn't understand. They didn't believe in him at this point. Later, at least some of them did. But right now they didn't. And they said, well, come on, man. If you want to, you know, be big religious leader, you've got to get out there and get a following. But Jesus wasn't that way. He will not quarrel. He wasn't out picking fights with people just to argue or cry aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus talked to people. And he talked to them on a conversational level. Talked to Nicodemus in the middle of the night, at least late in the evening. His ministry was humble in manner. You know, I think true biblical ministry follows that pattern. It doesn't try to be a spectacular. It doesn't try to be a big show. It tends to work quietly behind the scenes. It's the mustard seed that nobody notices that's growing and working. It's the farmer who plants the seed and goes to bed at night, and he gets up the next day and he looks at what happens, and it all happened while he was asleep. He didn't even see it, didn't even notice it until the fruit was beginning to show. There's a humility. There's a quietness. There's a restfulness, in fact, in this kind of ministry. In most ministry today, most of what God is doing in the world is not in the big names and not in the big events. This one person talking to another or a Sunday school teacher teaching a class of a few children. Who knows what God will do in the lives of those children in the future? You see, much of the big things that draw our attention distract us from what God is actually and really doing in hidden places, quietly, secretly, humble in manner, gentle with the weak. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, if you're a fan of Puritan writing at all, uh, you're familiar with uh, Richard Sibbs, The Bruised Reed. Uh, got this in the library. It's in that whole Puritan paperback series, which I highly commend to you. Uh, this is Richard Sibbs' sermon on this verse. <laughs> We're not going to spend quite that much time on it. 
But uh, Sib just goes through and, and looks at that and expands that to look at Jesus' compassion and gentleness in dealing with hurting people. Well, this is how he describes what it is to be a bruised reed. A reed, by the way, they were plentiful, no shortage of reeds. They would make them for flutes and make them for pens. If one broke, there was no shortage. You throw it out and you go get another one. Well, of course, the bruised reed here is, is a human being, someone in weakness, someone who's hurting. And uh, Sibs describes it this way. The bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery, as those were that came to Christ for help. And by misery, he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. For whatever pretense sin makes, they come to an end when we are bruised and broken. He is sensible of sin and misery, even unto bruising. And seeing no help in himself, is carried with restless desire to have supply from another with some hope, which a little raises him out of himself to Christ though he dare not claim any present interest of mercy. This spark of hope being opposed by doubtings and fears rising from corruption makes him a smoking flax, so that both these together, a bruised reed and smoking flax, make up the state of a poor, distressed man. This is such a one as our Savior Christ terms poor in spirit, who sees his lacks and also sees himself indebted to divine justice. He has no means of supply from himself or the creature, therefore mourns, and upon some hope of mercy from the promise and examples of those who have obtained mercy is stirred up to hunger and thirst after it. Well, Jesus is describing here, or the passage is describing here, Jesus' ministry to those who are a bruised reed, a broken reed, the kind of person that others are tempted to throw out, to get rid of. They're not worth saving. But Jesus ministered to those kinds of people. Or the smoking wick, the smoldering wick, that flickering candle. The wick is bad. Temptation is just to throw it out. It would take too much time and effort to try to repair the wick. And yet, the kind of person that others are tempted to throw out is the one Jesus comes to and ministers to in their lack, in their want, in their pain, in their hurt. And so he doesn't break that bruised reed. He doesn't quench that smoldering wick. It's struggling. It's about to fail. But Jesus doesn't put it out. Jesus ministers to us gently when we're hurting, as he demonstrated throughout his ministry. It was the Pharisees who, who threw out people by the hundreds with the, with the label sinners. They were, of course, so were the Pharisees, but it was a label. It was a term of derision, of condescension on their part. But Jesus saw them not as sinners, but as people, people he came for, people made in the Father's image, people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, people in need of a Savior. Dear friends, we should too. It's very easy to look at people who are hurting people who are wavering, people who are struggling, say, I don't have time for that. Say, they're just going to be a drain. Say, they're just a problem. Best stay away from them. Those are the very people Jesus looked for, the very people to whom he ministered, and his church can certainly not afford to ignore his example. Chosen by God, empowered by the Spirit, humble in manner, manner, gentle with the weak, but also proclaiming justice and hope for the nations. Now, this is somewhat unusual because you, you would look at this kind of person and think, this is not the person who wins victories. Expect someone bold and strong, tough, go out there and win the victories. He brings, until, he will minister in this quiet, gentle, humble way, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Justice for the nations, the putting down of the wicked. The raising of those who trust in him. Hope. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. 
Dear friends, hope does not come from any political candidate. Hope comes from Christ alone. And Jesus says that it is his name that the Gentiles, the nations, the people of this earth will hope. And so that's the prophecy. That's the uh, description of Jesus' ministry. That's why he withdrew. Jesus wasn't out looking for noisy confrontation with those who were deaf and blind. He withdrew to minister to those who were hurting, those who sought him out, those who needed his ministry. Well, I'd like to suggest a couple of applications. One, imitate Jesus in what he did in this ministry uh, and doing good to those who were in need. As a church, as believers, that is our calling. Our ministry is not to draw attention to ourselves. It's certainly not to lord ourselves over others, but it is to humble ourselves and gently serve those whom God brings into our path. It might be tangible, physical service. It might be speaking to them uh, about Christ and sharing the gospel with them. But even more basic than that, the second application is to believe in Jesus for who he is. Not just for what he did, imitating him for what he did, but to believe in Jesus for who he is. Only after we've trusted in him are we then to do the works that he did. But it was Jesus himself who said, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. We are to come to Jesus to find our rest in him. And then we are to share Jesus and extend his rest to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus and what we read here in these words. And to think that he is the sovereign Lord of history. And yet ministered in so quiet and gentle and humble a way. Father, give us grace to be like him in that. Make us humble. Make us gentle. Give us, Father, your eyes of compassion. Your heart of compassion for those around us who are hurting that we might minister to them, as did our servant Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.